Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 15 to 23. Give your undivided attention to the reading of this Word of God, which is indeed inerrant and infallible. Therefore, I also, and by the way, I should point out, I'm reading from the New King James. Uh, if you have the ESV, that's you're not going to find it too terribly different. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in your holy word. We rejoice that you use it to change us. Lord, we've already confessed to you and before each other that we are sinners. And therefore, we understand we need to be changed. Lord, we pray that you would take the proclamation of your holy word this morning to change us to bring about that which you desire to be accomplished through the proclamation of your holy word. And Father, we do understand that true preaching is, is supernatural. It is that which is produced by the Holy Spirit, working in those who proclaim your word. But then also, there is that supernatural element of the empowered Word working by the Spirit in those who hear that proclamation. We pray, Father, that you would abundantly bless us through the preaching of your Word. For, Father, we know that we need it. Speak to our hearts. May we hear the voice of our dear Savior. Make this a time of your power. We plead with you. And we ask this in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are lost have absolutely no spiritual discernment that would enable them to receive the things of the Spirit of God. And if you were at Sunday school this morning, you realize this is an appropriate second dose, so to speak. But moving on. Those who belong to the Spirit of darkness, they simply do not have the ability to receive the things of the Spirit of God. As Paul said, because they are spiritually discerned. Until they are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son, they have absolutely no ability to receive the things of God's Spirit. They may strive to receive those things. As one of my roommates in college put it, man is incurably religious. You think that through, I think you realize a lot of truth in that. Think about all the cults. Think about all the false religions. They may strive to, re- to receive the things of the Spirit of God, but the truth of the matter is, all these cults, all of these false religions, are a part of King of Satan's dark kingdom. The striving of religious people to receive the things of the Spirit of God while being in the kingdom of darkness is as futile as blind people in a totally darkened room looking for a black cat that isn't even there. The only way that anyone can have any spiritual discernment, true spiritual discernment, is through being saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when the glorious light of the gospel of Christ shined in our hearts that we were able to, to see the glorious light of the gospel. And having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, it's then that we have this spiritual discernment. If you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have spiritual discernment. But we must recognize that that discernment needs to increase more and more. John Calvin states that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, there occurs a striking display of God's wonderful mercy when the salvation of men is traced to its, free, excuse me, to its true and native source, the free act of adoption. 
But as the minds of men are ill-fitted to receive so sublime a mystery, he betakes himself to prayer that God would enlighten the Ephesians. Verses 15 through 23 form one sentence in the Greek. Um, So does the previous section. Paul's famous for his long sentences. The main idea of that sentence is that Paul gives thanks for the Ephesians' salvation, and then he prays for their enlightenment. This prayer is placed very strategically here at the beginning of the book. The implication is that Paul understood that these Ephesian believers would need this spiritual enlightenment, sometimes we call it illumination, so they would understand the rest of the book. By, and by implication, all of Scripture. Now, Lord willing, next time I'm here, I'll be preaching from Paul's second prayer to the Ephesians, or for the Ephesians, where he prays for them to be strengthened. And that comes just before the section where Paul presents all those duties of God's people. The implication is that they need to be strengthened in order to have that grace that they need to obey God and to fulfill those duties. First of all, I want us to consider the reason for why Paul prayed for these Ephesians. Notice that verse 15 begins with, Therefore, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Therefore points back to all the blessings that Paul set before them in verses 3 through 14. Let me just summarize those blessings. They were elected and predestined to adoption by God the Father. That's verses 4 through 5. They were redeemed by God the Son through His blood. That's verse 7. And they were sealed by God the Holy Spirit. That's verse 13. So that's the reason why he prayed for these believers. It's because they are genuine believers. And as we move on, starting with verse 16, we can see that the first part of his prayer is to give thanksgiving to God because of their salvation. Notice how he begins with this matter of thanksgiving begins with because of what he had heard regarding their faith and their love for all the saints. The, in my new, new King James, I have, after I heard of your faith, if you have your ESV with you, which I agree with, is for this reason, because I heard. Therefore, it points back to the blessings that motivated Paul to pray for these people. But here, having heard of their faith in love, this motivates them to pray and thank God 
for their salvation. It's rather interesting that when he mentions faith here, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. It's literally when I heard of the faith according to you. The faith according to you. Now, that's an interesting point. Now, the translators and the commentators do different things. Um, Some simply translate it, your faith, which is what I have in front of me. Others have the faith among you, which I think is closer to what Paul's getting at. But this, this expression regarding faith is very unique to Paul in reference to faith. Faith according to you. I believe that what Paul means here is he is rejoicing. He is giving thanks to God for the state of their faith as it was reported to him. In other words, he is thanking God for the quality and the character of their faith. Now, we know that Paul knew that they were believers. You go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 you learn that Paul ministered among them for three years. So he's not talking about that he's just now learned that these are believers. He knew they were believers. But as I said, he apparently is referring to the character and the quality of their faith when it was reported to them. Which leads to a very important question. What is faith according to Fellowship Presbyterian Church? Have you ever thought about that? What is faith according to this congregation? Now, just by my observations of you all, I think you all have a really good, solid faith. One of the reasons why I love to come here. But the next question is, what is faith according to you as an individual believer? There is the corporate nature of faith, but there's also the individual nature of faith. Is your faith vibrant? Is it a lively faith? Is it a strong faith? Or is it a weak faith? Is it a loving faith? Is it merely an intellectual assent to biblical truths? Or is it a true confidence in God? Ask yourselves those questions. But Paul doesn't stop there with this matter of faith. Notice how he goes on. And your love for all the saints. Uh-oh. If you're paying attention, the word all probably rubs you the wrong way. Are you paying attention? All the saints. Not just some of the saints. Not just the lovely saints. Someone once said, when I live... Above with saints we love, that will be glory. But living here below with saints we know, that's another story. (laughs) But think, Paul is thanking God for the love that these believers have one for another. Think about that. The love that they have, not just for one another, but even for all the saints. One of the things that I enjoy doing is reading through the standards, I guess it is four times a year. And 
I, I, I so appreciate the Westminster Larger Catechism. Westminster Larger Catechism 175, what we find there is that we are instructed as part of our preparation to receive the Lord's Supper is to examine ourselves regarding love to God and the brethren. It also goes on to say, and charity for all men. As you know, when I administer the Lord's Supper, I ask the congregation to spend some time in silent examination. And I would encourage you that when you do that, listen to this, these words of instruction. That you would examine yourself regarding your love to God and the brethren. Remember Jesus said in John 13:35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love if you have love one for another so here we find that paul is motivated to pray for these believers because of the blessings he knows that they have he's seen the evidence of their salvation and he's thanking god for that that evidence being the faith that they have and the love that they have for all the saints. And then in verse 17, he begins to pray. The intercessory part of the prayer begins with verse 17. Let me read these verses. It's verses going to be 17 and 18. First part of 18. That God, that's the intercession, that's the request, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I should point out that when he prays here, that God will grant them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That there's a question is whether the word spirit should have a small s or a capital S. My New King James, the King James itself, the New American Standard, and the older version of the ESV all have small s. The newer version of the ESV and also the NIV, and there's other versions that have a capital S. I believe that there's three reasons for why we should understand that the word spirit here refers to the spirit that is the inner spiritual nature of the Ephesians rather than the Holy Spirit. If you look back at verse 13, you learn that they already have the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed by the Spirit. Also, there's no article. In the Greek, there's no article in front of spirit. Um, it would be better to have translated, gives you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Many times when the Holy Spirit is clearly the referent, it has, the word spirit has an article in front of it. Also, at the beginning of verse 18, you have the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Paul here is advancing what he meant. So when he says that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and Revelation in the knowledge of him, it's almost as though he has, in other words, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. 
Paul is making it abundantly clear that the Ephesians needed to have a spirit characterized by the exercise of wisdom and by the reception of revelation. And let me just point out this. Even though I am convinced that the word spirit in this text should refer to the human spirit of the Ephesians, we need to understand that illumination, enlightenment, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether you have a version that says capital S or small s, we still need to understand the one implies the other. So I don't believe anything's lost in our understanding of this text, no matter how your text reads. You see, you can't have the wisdom Paul is referring to apart from revelation, apart from Scripture. Those go hand in hand. There is this need for us to study the Scripture, examine the Scriptures, so that we will have a spirit that is characterized by the wisdom that Paul is referring to, but also that revelation, that reception of revelation. Now, this wisdom and this revelation, each one of these advances the other. Each one of these advances the other. In other words, your increased understanding and application of revelation increases your wisdom, which increases your understanding and application, which increases your wisdom, and so forth. (coughs) So there's this wonderful cyclical thing that Paul is bringing us to, that as we cycle through this, there is an increase of our wisdom and our ability to apply revelation. And, of course, that revelation is that which comes to us from God, and that's, of course, pointing us to God's Holy Scripture. The doctrine of enlightenment or illumination is not just a New Testament doctrine. You find that in Psalm 119 and verse 18, where the psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. What am I encouraging you to do? I'm encouraging you to pray the same prayer for yourself that Paul prayed for these Ephesians. This isn't just a nice, oh, isn't it so nice that Paul prayed this prayer for these believers? Isn't that nice? No, the implication is we should pray this for ourselves. We do have, as we move on, the three purposes for why Paul prayed for God the Father to give these believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why he prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be Enlightened. The first one, look at the beginning of verse 18. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. 
Why do you and I need to pray for God to illumine us? Because we need to know the hope of God's calling. Hope. What is hope? Well, in the secular sense, it's basically synonymous with the word wish. Unbelievers, for them, hope refers to the desire that what is wanted will occur. That's that's as far as they can take it. But what is the Christian hope? I like the way one commentator put it. It's an assured expectation. An assured expectation. I like that, but I would like to add this to it, expand that definition to this. The Christian hope is an assured expectation for good from God. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a blessed hope, not a hope so. This assured expectation for good from God increases with that enlightenment that God gives to his people. This hope is indeed a privileged expectation of God's adopted children whom he has redeemed by the blood of his Son. When we come to these words of his calling, the idea is that God himself is the source of that, of that hope. He called us in order that we would have hope. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. Here it is. Having no hope and without God in the world. When God calls you to salvation, He gave you a hope. By the way, there's a certain progression here which I think you'll see. So why is it that you need to know what is the hope of God's calling? It's because we're all prone to despair. Oh, by the way, where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Prison. Prison. Although I don't think he despaired. I think he was always a joyful believer. I might be wrong, but I can check that out when I get the glory. But see, all believers are susceptible the situations that bring despair, such as a serious ailment, loss of a job, troubled marriage, a rebellious child, stress, death of a loved one. You need to pray for God to enlighten you as you study the Scriptures 
so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Because God relieves your despair with the hope of his calling. Notice how he moves on then to the second purpose of why he prayed for these believers to be illumined or enlightened by God. He goes on and he says, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, the inheritance here refers to the inheritance that we will receive. Actually, we have it now. We have the inheritance now. We have this inheritance now. Some have explained, no, this is God inheriting his people. I don't think the context bears that out. This is, and when it says his inheritance, it should be understood, that inheritance that comes from him. It's the inheritance that he gives his people. And I love the way Paul describes this. The glory of his inheritance. The glory. That glory refers to the splendor of that inheritance. The sense is that what makes the inheritance so glorious is the spiritual wealth we will receive when either we die or when Christ returns. This means that you, as one of God's adopted, blood-bought children, have a rich and therefore glorious inheritance. Do you believe that? I know at least one person does. Now I see. Now I should also point it out that in my text where it reads, in the saints is better understood as among the saints. There are many commentators who recognize that. Among the saints. We should never forget the corporate nature of our faith. We are bound together as the body of Christ, which Paul talks on but in just, just very shortly. We all know the bitter taste of disappointment and dissatisfaction. In fact, I'm convinced that the Lord puts a little bit or at least a little bit of dissatisfaction in everything so that we realize that our joy should ultimately come from Him and not our circumstances. But you need to pray for God to enlighten you as you study the Scriptures so that you will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, because God relieves your dissatisfaction with the knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. My wife told me that when she was growing up, her pastor used to tell this story about a man who loved the custom of a hostess telling her dinner guests, keep your forks. Now, the reason why he loved that custom is because in his mind it meant something better was coming. And everybody that knew him knew he loved that custom and they knew why he loved it. When it came time for him to make arrangements for his funeral, he asked for his body to be placed in the casket with a fork in his hand. <laughs> because he wanted everybody that knew him 
and knew he loved that custom to know that he died knowing something better was coming. And undoubtedly, knowing that something better was coming, that inheritance was not only something that comforted him in the prospect of his death, but undoubtedly it comforted him in the face of any difficulty that he might find himself in. The third purpose for why Paul prayed for the enlightenment of the Ephesians comes next. Notice how he goes on in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? I'm going to stop there. There is this desire that Paul has that the Lord would enlighten these Ephesian believers because he wants them to know what is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward believers. That suggests that you and I need illumination to really grasp that. Now, those who understand that the phrase at the end of 19, according to the working of his power, suggests that goes with believe. And they would take the prepositional phrase translated according to as who believe as a result of the working of his mighty power. Now, that's true. We we would understand that. But that's kind of forcing a definition on a preposition that doesn't really work too. I agree with Calvin that it should be connected with power. It's his power that is working according to his mighty power. Now that phrase there, according to the working of his power, this is how the Greek literally reads. You're probably getting tired of me referring to the Greek, but hey, bear with me. It literally reads, according to the working of the power of his might. According to the working of the power of his might. The word translated working has the idea of the result of the power. The word translated power has the idea of strength in action. We might call this force. And the word translated might refers to inherent or natural strength. We might call it just that, strength. Now, Paul actually presents these words in reverse order. Hope I can get this across to you well. See, these words are illustrated by an arm driving a nail with a hammer. The arm possesses strength or might. The movement of the arm applied to the head of the nail by the hammer is force. And the extent to which the nail goes into the wood, the wood demonstrates the amount of the force which demonstrates the strength of his arm or of the arm. Now, in case you didn't quite get it, this is, let me sum it up. Here is Paul's point. His point is that God is mighty, forceful, and effective 
in the exercise of his power toward us who believe. Let me say that again. Paul's point is that God is mighty, forceful, and effective in the power, I mean, in the exercise of his power toward us who believe. Do you believe that? That means we don't worry, right? We don't worry, right? Oh, I think you understand it. Why I would bring that up. There is an inconsistency here, but we all have to acknowledge we are sinners. And we really should understand that we need for God to give us enlightenment, illumination in his scriptures so that we would grasp a hold of this great truth. That God is mighty, forceful, and effective in the exercise of his power toward us who believe. Now we need to understand that this power, Paul points us to the fact that this power operated when Christ was exalted. I'm using his exaltation because theologians tend to join his resurrection and his enthronement together and they refer to that as his exaltation. Notice the reference to the resurrection in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Then also, he points us to our Savior's dominion, where we read, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Why did Paul point us to the resurrection and to the enthronement of our Savior? Well, it's because his resurrection, our Savior's resurrection, points to God's power in us. Notice how Paul begins verse 20, which he worked in Christ which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Why then does he point us to Christ's universal dominion? It's because Christ's universal dominion points us to his power for us. The resurrection points us to his power in us. His universal dominion points us to his power for us. Perhaps the reason you have doubts about God working for you is that you do not sense him working in you. Get that connection. Perhaps the reason you have doubts about God working for you is because you do not sense him working now understand this, when the scripture speaks about the authority of Christ, the scripture is not merely saying that Christ has the right to rule, which indeed he does. But it also means that he has the power to fulfill all of his holy will. Now we come to this next phrase here, where he says, There in verse 
I'm skipping over, but I, I want to get this, verse 22. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. I do not like the way the New King James translated this. And he gave him to be head over all things to the church. No, he gave him who is the head of all things to the church. God did not give us his son in order for the son to become something. He gave his son to the church because of what he already is, the head of all things. I don't know what your ESV reads, but maybe it reads something like that. If it doesn't, well, correct it. Well, I should, well, I gotta be careful about saying those things. But, it's also very interesting that you have here, beginning of verse 23, which is his body. Which is his body. Many times, uh, even in English, a relative clause expresses the reason or the grounds for something. And so the idea here is that God gave Christ, who is head over all things, to the church because it is his body. Christ is seated upon the throne. We are his body. You have thrown union with Christ. And I wish you had time to unpack that. But you have thrown union with Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on and he says, referring to Christ who fills all in all. I think the best way to understand that is that he fills the universe with everything as a way to express vastness of his dominion. You need to pray. This includes me. You need to pray for God to enlighten you as you study the scriptures so that you will know what is the exceeding greatness of his power because God responds to your weaknesses with the exceeding greatness of his power which he works both in you and for you. A secretary in an adjacent office where I once worked, named Marilyn, told me about how she had done a friend a huge favor. And and as an expression of gratitude, the friend offered to pay for dinner for two in one of the finest restaurants in Greenville. Marilyn decided to ask her daughter, who was about seven or eight years old, if she would like to go with her. And, of course, she said yes. So they chose a night. They got all dressed up. They went to the restaurant. They were seated by the maitre d'. And a few minutes later, the waiter came by to take their order. And Marilyn told me that when her daughter was asked what she would like to eat, she said, a hot dog. Well, Marilyn told me that she then leaned over to her daughter and said, no, sweetheart, 
You do not understand. You do not need to be concerned about how expensive the meals are here. Someone else is paying for us. You may order anything on the menu you want. Marilyn told me that her daughter's little face lit up and she began looking over the menu again and then she says, well, in that case, I'll have two hot dogs. <laughs> you see, obviously Marilyn's daughter did not really understand. She didn't really have the capacity to realize what a wonderful opportunity she'd been given. <coughs> but now that she's grown up, she probably has children of her own, I'm sure that she was given the same opportunity or a similar opportunity that her choice would be quite different. See, people, as they mature, they gain understanding and knowledge that allows them to appropriate, or excuse me, to appreciate more and more their benefits and their opportunities. And that's how it is in the spiritual realm as well. Do... You appreciate the benefits and the opportunities that you have in Christ. Paul prayed for God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And through that enlightenment, they would be able to know what is the hope of God's calling. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward them? This prayer is one you should pray for yourself, but I suggest you also pray for others. I'm thinking particularly of parents praying for their children. I'm thinking of elders. Pray this for congregation. Husbands, pray this for your wife. Wife, pray this for your husband. Are the things that God prayed for precious to you? They should be. For God meets your despair with the hope of his calling. He meets your dissatisfaction with the knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. And he meets your disabilities with the exceeding greatness of his power, which works both in you. Our Father, we give you thanks for this this prayer. For Father, we recognize that not only does it show us the heart of Paul, but it shows us the heart of our Savior. For indeed, it is our Savior through Paul who offered this prayer up to you for these believers. We're thankful that even today our great high priest is interceding for us. Lord, we ask that you would grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of yourself. We pray that the eyes of our understanding would indeed be enlightened. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.